Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music, and we are back as always these days with my friend and the co-creator of Hell and High Water, Grace Weinstein. Grace, the uber Boston Celtics fan, the woman who had the confidence, the brio, the sheer balls to predict that the Celtics would win in six and... Not so much, Grace. It's a few days later now. Have you recovered? This may surprise you, but this is one of the few times I've left my apartment <laughs> since that faded Thursday night. Have not seen the sun. I hear this weekend was chilly. I did not experience it for myself. I am in full recovery and morning mode. Hopefully it will be over soon. It may not be over until tip-off next season. We'll see how the summer goes. Come on, Grace. Come on. Let's bounce back a little bit here. They had a good year. They did, and I'm proud. I'm so proud. They're young. They're feisty. The core is going to stay together. They love each other. They settled their debts. I'll try to frame a more positive mindset, and I think we've got some good reason for a positive mindset this week with our guest, correct? Yes, it's Leah Schreiber, who's come on the podcast. I've been wanting to get him on for a long time. You were hired really early at the recount, but I don't think you were there. Like first few weeks of the company, Leah, who's a friend of mine, stopped by and created a frisson of excitement in the office when we were just a tiny little company. I've been wanting to get him on to the show because he's been doing all this work in Ukraine. He has some Ukrainian blood. His grandfather was Ukrainian. He's been very moved by the plight of the Ukrainian people, has spent some time in Ukraine and Poland, has started a new NGO to help people figure out which of the many aid organizations over there are legit and which you should give money to and which are not. It's called Blue Check, a very useful thing for anybody who wants to give money over there. But I also want to just kind of revive the topic of the war, which after wall-to-wall coverage for a couple months has now receded into the background a little bit. And I'm curious, how much are you paying attention still to the war in Ukraine and what Russia is doing there and, and Zelensky and all that stuff that occupied our minds so much in the spring? It's so strange because the way that all of our newsfeed algorithms work, we've tailored it to see what we want to see and tailored it to our interests. So my Twitter feed is coming off of basketball season and then a lot about Texas Republicans, a lot about gun control. So it feels like Ukraine has kind of unfortunately been shoved out. It's just not popping up through the algorithm anymore and not getting recommended. That being said, I try to seek it out when I can. It's sad to see that the situation is still just as dire as it was, if not getting worse and sadder and more harmful to more people. Yeah, I mean, I've been kind of amazed, actually, how much coverage this war got for a war where there weren't American troops on the ground. American media stuck with it for a pretty long time, and I'm glad to see they're still sticking with it. To some extent, last week, there was some news that broke. NBC News broke a story about Joe Biden having been unhappy with his Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. When they went over to Ukraine in the spring and announced that, hey, you know what? Ukraine can win this war and the U.S. should try to help it win this war. And Biden was kind of like, uh, you know what? Like, we just want the war to end. That's a kind of a picture of a president who's trying to balance between wanting to help the Ukrainians and end the war, but also not wanting to provoke Russia in any way. And I asked Liev, who has spoken to President Zelensky and obviously has this deep attachment to the Ukrainian people, what he thought about whether Ukraine could win this war. My own experience meeting them, knowing them, speaking to them is that they can win this and they will. That's just how I feel about it. I think that's how President Zelensky feels about it. And I think how that's the average Ukrainian feels about it. And and rightly so, because the truth is at stake and the truth is at stake 
not only there, but it's at stake here. And the values that they're fighting for are the same values that we fought for, the same values that created our Constitution. I had the chance to speak with the president, Zelensky, and I asked him, what would he say to people who are considering supporting Ukraine in this effort? You know, the guy's a great speaker. And he just said, you know, first of all, you're, you're a lot braver than you think you are. And that it's better to stop this now before it comes knocking at your door. And I thought that those were somewhat prescient words. What do you think, Chris? Should we be trying to help Ukraine win this war? I think there's a really strange phenomenon that happened here that I have been hung up on since the beginning, which is like, when we found out that Russia was invading Ukraine, we were all like, oh, they're fucked. They're absolutely getting wiped off the map. This is going to be a disaster. So many people are going to die. And it's not to say that that hasn't been the case. But Ukrainians everywhere came out very strong, led by Zelensky, saying, no, we feel like we can win this. And that feeling that Ukrainians have had since day one of, no, this is totally possible, I feel this way, has kind of infected the larger culture around the world of being like, okay, I trust your feelings. And I've just never seen that before. So I hope that all of their collective feeling is correct. Well, I think it's also everybody having, like you said, assumed that it would be over in days, including Putin assuming that. And Ukrainians just fighting with such bravery and determination and such success. They've already won in the sense that they've foiled the Russian war aims. And that's itself kind of an extraordinary thing. You know, the other thing uh, that, of course, if you're going to get Liam Schreiber on your show beyond Ukraine, you got to talk about his acting. And he's a really one of the great thespians of our age, m- most famously known First as a theatrical actor, won a Tony for Glengarry Glenn Ross, won a Drama Discord, I think, for Arthur Miller's View from the Bridge. He has not done that much theater of late, mainly because he got preoccupied with film and television. Ray Donovan on Showtime ran for seven seasons, huge favorite of a lot of people. And then a lot of people know him from his role playing former Boston Globe editor, Marty Baron, who went on to become the Washington Post editor in the movie Spotlight about the first inklings of the Catholic Church's abuse of kids that broke in the globe and is a famous, famous story. I'm curious, Grace, you're a connoisseur of fine film and television. You got a favorite in the Schreiber oeuvre? Aside from Spotlight, which is just an amazing movie, top to bottom, he's in Salt. He is, That is like one of my favorite. I love that movie. Doesn't get enough credit for how good it is. So props to him for that one. I don't even... I don't even think I've seen Salt. What's that about? Oh, you got to go watch it. It's Angelina Jolie being spy amazing. I know what I'm doing this afternoon. Now. Yeah. I'm watching that. Cancel your schedule. I will say, I'm, I'm shutting down. I'm going to watch it like three times in a row just to really <laughs> become a Salt aficionado. The last thing I'll say before we go, Grace, maybe the highlight of this podcast, could be the highlight of your year, is a story that Liev tells about his first motion picture role. In 1994, he was in a movie called Mixed Nuts, which is a little known Nora Ephron film. Mm. The story he tells about it, however is more special than most stories that have ever been told in Hell and High Water. And I don't want to spoil it, but I will say the following things about it. It involves the Foxtrot, Steve Martin, and Liev Schreiber's erect penis. And I'm not kidding. I know, you're laughing. I mean, the, come on. That's the beginning of a fantastic knock-knock joke. Um, right. So listen, there's a lot of good stuff in this podcast, but you're not going to want to miss that story because it does, that story, give a totally new meaning to the phrase Hell and High Water. We must stop the war, which this state has started against my state, trying to bring the world back in the old times when the freedom of peoples and people's lives were of no significance at all. 
If it's about sanctions, then we need sanctions. If it's about symmetrical measures to limit the servicing of Russian ships in ports, then we need these measures. Russia must feel that its belligerent policies will have consequences for itself as well. So there's President Zelensky about a week ago or so talking to the Danish media, the man who's been as ubiquitous as anybody I've ever seen and a master of all media. He's still out there, still doing it. And we're here with Liev Schreiber today on Hell and I Water. Liev, it's great to see you, man. It's great to see you. I just want to be clear. That wasn't President Zelensky. That was one of President Zelensky's translators. Yes, yes. And he's got a number of them. And they vary in terms of their performative skills. This guy, I would give about a seven or eight. Yeah, out of 10. Right about Zelensky himself, I would give him a 10. He's got skills. He does. And I would say, as someone who's a student of political communication, that the first couple months, he's giving a master class in political communication, in rallying the world and tailoring his message for different audiences and for different platforms. Like he would go low when he needed to go low, do social media, you know, he'd be broadcast media, he'd be print media. They just were like on fire. Now it doesn't feel like they're any less good, but it's, you know, time's passed, right? And the challenge is how do you keep up that kind of performance, that flood the zone performance? Do you feel like his ability to get his message out has been inhibited in some way just by people's kind of exhaustion with this topic? Is that a problem they're facing? I think it is a problem that they're facing. I think it's, uh, what do the people call it, the Ukraine fatigue or something like that? I think it started with the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. And uh, after that, our attention spans, I think, sort of dropped off precipitously. But, you know, he had his debut, his opening, and I think people saw that and realized the kind of person he was. The interest peaked. It hasn't changed. He still is that same person. He is that simple. He is that clear in his message. I just think that the event has not been able to keep pace with the news cycle. But it is there, and it is as urgent as ever. Right. Have you met him in the course of your travels, Zelensky? Uh, only on Zoom. Only on Zoom. You know, yes. I did a, a week of guest hosting on MSNBC about two weeks ago. And we did Ukraine every day as a, as a matter of principle, because I obviously it is still there and obviously it is still just as urgent as ever. But we're doing a block in two hours. We're not doing wall to wall for two hours. And, right. and the truth is, you know, there's a chicken egg thing here, right? I'm actually amazed that there's as much coverage of it as there now. I've never seen actually a conflict, a foreign conflict that has no American troops on the ground that's had as much coverage that's gone on this long. I was more cynical. I would have thought within a month, it'd be off the air completely. And the fact that you still see coverage of it on CNN and MSNBC and Fox is kind of incredible, but you're right. It's a huge challenge, right? So, you know, what do you do about that? As you've become engaged in this issue, one of the things I've seen you say a bunch of times is that sustainability is the challenge, keeping the focus on it, making the case that it's still urgent and breaking through. How do you deal with that? How do you do it? Well, I mean, for us at Blue Check, it's it's really about finding new ways and new events to kind of raise awareness and raise money. I think the other thing that you do is is the sort of obvious thing. You know, you hope you can get some celebrities or something like that, like me, to become connected to your cause so you can get some awareness around it, some social media hits. I think since I started this group with some friends and haven't yet been able to get anybody more famous than me to come on board, except maybe you, um, <laughs> Uh, it's It's been tricky. But the other thing is that we keep growing and, and interesting things keep happening. So there are these reasons for us to keep reaching out and making news. You know, I will say I'm thinking about celebrity right now because you cited, of course, celebrities uh, is pretty key, right? I look at, at your Instagram account with its 
533,000 followers or so. That's, that's, that's a nice that number. Is that a lot? That's a nice, Is that well, a good it's, number? It's, an, it's a nice number, but I'll tell you, last night when the Drake album dropped, and I'm not a Drake fan, uh, yeah. I, but Drake, Drake means nothing to me, and you know, you and I are both hip hop fans, but Drake has mm-hmm. always been a mystery to me. I don't get the Drake phenomenon. Okay? I like Drake. Okay, so you uh, like him? Uh, a couple, a couple, I, I can get with it. He's got a few songs that I like, but I mean, the, yeah. the degree of it, the obsession that some people have with it, I don't understand. But is that it KRS One? Yes. Not really. No, is not. it Big Daddy Kane? Not really. But maybe that's just an age thing. Chuck, I don't Chuck D. No. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, um, no. But look, he's got like 113 million followers on Instagram. So yeah. I would say that's not just twice yours. That's like 20 times yours. And I'm yeah. not dissing you. I'm just saying like you need to get some celebrities at that scale. Yeah, that's not Absolutely. I would welcome Drake. If he wants to be a part of Blue Check, we would welcome him with open arms. Absolutely. You've mentioned Blue Check twice now, and I just want you to tell the story of what it is and why you started I know you've told the story a bunch, but it's fascinating to me because I know what a slovenly, lazy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> person you had become during the yeah. pandemic. I, I have some firsthand familiarity with that. So I yeah. like when I hear you tell these stories, like, well, I was laying on the couch watching TV, and I'm like, yes, he was. He's not kidding. Yes, um, I was. How did it happen? Um, I was watching TV, you know, <laughs> occasionally with the kids, watching the news cycle, thinking about Ukraine and thinking about how there's this idea out there that I am Ukrainian and that I don't really know what that means to be Ukrainian. I mean, I've tried really hard to figure out what that means by going there, by making a film about it, by pursuing a relationship with my grandfather. And I never felt particularly connected to it. And then I was watching at one point these guys, middle-aged guys like me, big, graying, balding, middle-aged guys. Too much hair on your back. Smoking cigarettes, cleaning mm. guns, and then saying goodbye to their families and putting them on buses and realizing that a lot of these guys weren't soldiers, but they were about to be in a fight that they were vastly outnumbered in and outgunned. And I just was so impressed by that. And I thought, no, that's not me. I guess I'm not Ukrainian. I wonder if there's any haagen left in the freezer and <laughs> sitting on the couch watching this, feeling a bit disconnected, remembering my grandfather and the kind of person that he was and thinking that I should do something and having friends call me because of this assumption about me being Ukrainian and asking me what to do and I had no idea and so that they were just going to do what everyone assumed you did in that case which is that you donated some money to one of the large international charities that helps in situations like this then I got a call from a friend of mine Harris Fishman we went to Yale together and he wanted to do a film project basically and on that call which was something I, I wasn't really interested in I wasn't really interested in making art out of what was going on at that time I'm still not really it's a little too acute for me but he had some really interesting guys on the call too Jason Cohn who used to work at Doctors Without Borders and Michael Goldfarb who is the communications director for Doctors Without Borders Jason is now the chief of public policy at Robin Hood basically these are just guys who have like a ton of experience yeah. in humanitarian aid and know what to do and when they asked me what I would want to do I said well I just want to find ways that we can help people help because I, I know that there's this huge groundswell of support from Americans for Ukraine. So how can we harness that? All of my friends who I've talked to who were suddenly acting like it was the Spanish-American Civil War and they wanted to jump, you know? And I was like, no, don't. You got kids. Hang on. 
So how can we help? How can all of those guys help? After a little research and talking figured out is that the people who are doing the best work in terms of humanitarian aid and having the most impact are actually the Ukrainians, which it makes a lot of sense. But these groups that are being subcontracted by larger international charities, because, you know, a lot of these big charities, they can't operate in country because of the liabilities, right. which you're, you're probably right. familiar with. Yeah. So what they do is they subcontract people on the ground. And so we found these people on the ground that have been getting the contracts and are doing the work and their NGOs. And we said, why don't we figure out a way that we can fast track financial support to them? One of the big things that we found people were scared about in America was how do we know that our money is doing what it's doing and it's an right. Eastern Bloc country? Yeah. Is this yeah, safe, yeah. corruption, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So luckily, we got Ropes and Gray and Integrity Risk International to offer us their services pro bono, and they run our vetting procedures. So now we've got this system set up where we pick the NGOs, Ropes and Gray, IRI, vet them. They have to open their books to us. They have to report where the money's going and what's happening. And it's a great system, yeah. and it's really been going well. What I love about it is it's so utilitarian. I mean, I've had people ask me why there hasn't been like a live aid for Ukraine. Like, why is that? Why have yeah. there not been a big giant concert? And look, I went to live aid. And I look back fondly on that era of that kind of activism where Conspiracy of Hope tour and all that stuff that happened. But I was inspired by those things and they were yeah, important. Yeah, me too. And, and when people ask that question, the first thing in my mind is sort of like, yeah, where is that? You know? And then someone points out, well, there was an online version. I go, oh, okay. But then you get to this thing. It's not glamorous. You teamed up with people who are serious, who know how to do something. And you're basically saying, Here's a very urgent, simple need. I want to give money. I don't know who to trust. Give me a system where I can just understand how to do that so I know that I'm not pissing my money down a well. And I think the service is incredibly useful. And I think it's cool that you decided to go that direction rather than, hey, yeah, let's put on a show. Again, I'm not against somebody doing that. I'm sure if there was a big benefit, you would go be part well, of it. But I mean, it's like, um, it's much more work a day and it's much more down at the ground level going like, what can we do that is like really concrete really substantive and really useful. This is what this is. No glam to it though. Yeah. I think also people want to feel involved. I think they appreciate knowing what they're doing. I think they appreciate knowing who they're helping. And I'm also a crap singer, so a concert wouldn't yeah. really, you know. Although, by the way, I, I do think we should figure that out because I think that's a good idea too. Yeah. I think seeing you two playing in the subway was fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. It just reminded yeah, me. Totally. That's what we need. We need these bands to come out. So I'm not above trying to figure that one out and help organize that because I think it'd be great. I think it'd be great too. There was this online one that like, Global Citizen did and there were all these famous people who were on it but it's like, I don't know, man. Talk about Ukraine fatigue. Everybody has Zoom fatigue. And so the yeah. idea of like, I'm going to go watch an online thing with no. Elton John playing on his Twitter platform. It's like, you know. No, this, we, we, need, we need the garden or the park or yeah, something. Some inspiration. Something substantive. Yes. So I just want to ask you one quick question about your grandfather, right? Alex Milgram, your grandfather. That's mm -hmm. your Ukrainian connection, right? He was an important person in your life. Um, Huge. I mean, just talk about that a little bit and why he's the direct connection to Ukraine for you. And you talked a little bit about how you've tried to understand it, but haven't really been able to understand it. But your grandfather was a very tangible figure in your life. He was the, the human vehicle by which you best know what it is to be Ukrainian, right? Yeah, well, I still don't. No, I mean, through him. I mean, he would never talk about it. I think he was actually born in Wuj, Poland. But his family came from and I lived for some time after and before in a town called Tomaszpil, which was in Ukraine. And I tried to find it, but was unable to. 
No, he was just, my, my parents split when I was really, really young. I came with my mother to New York. She was on her own with a kid and not a lot of resources, and he helped support her. And he didn't have a lot of money either. He was a butcher back in the days when the meat market was an actual meat market. He had a blue Chevy truck that he would drive from the meat market to diners. He would deliver meat to diners. My brothers and I, you know, as soon as I was old enough to carry a salami or a bag of celery, would work on that truck. And he was the guy in my life. He was like, for all intents and purposes, sort of raised me. And, you know, in that kind of old-fashioned way that I would get smacked in the back of the head if I didn't open a door or (laughs) if I didn't put my napkin in my lapkin and, you know, if I were ever rude to women or things like that. And I, I loved him and admired him. And, you know, I'm half Jewish. And there was this, like, thing about being Jewish that always seemed very unathletic and scholarly to me, which he completely contradicted. He was a hockey player. He was a boxer. He was a football player. And I remember once his truck got rear-ended on Mercer Street. And he wasn't a big guy. He was probably 5'8". Yeah. And somebody started yelling at him, and I was terrified. I couldn't have been older than 8 or 9 And my grandfather got out of the truck and walked back out of my vision. And I was too scared to look in the rearview mirror because I could see a guy yelling at him. And I heard a huge whomp onto the body of the truck. And then my grandfather got back in the truck without a scratch on him and drove away. I don't know what happened, but I got the (laughs) sense that my grandfather embedded that guy's head into the side of the truck. Anyways, he was somebody I really loved and admired and... We would have drunk Seder at his house every year, and it was the seat of family for me. And he hated everything German until my brother married a German woman, and then he loved everything German. And other than that, he would never talk about his past, his nationality. Every once in a while, he'd get drunk and he'd tell a bad Yiddish joke. Mm. Or, but he didn't ever spoke Ukrainian or Russian, or, and he wouldn't. And when he died, I, it was a kind of real crisis of identity and memory for me because I thought I was losing a resource that I hadn't tapped. Right. And that was the beginning of my writing career. I started to write fictional and also remembered accounts of him and his past. One of the, in in some interview you gave recently, you had this phrase that I liked where you said something about how you like to think of America as a nation of grandchildren, you know? Yeah. Um, is true, right? It's another way of basically saying a nation of immigrants. In our generation and older, that's definitely true, right? Because that's the way that you're connected to that immigrant experience is usually through your grandparents. And so it's funny that the number of people you know who have some very strong attachment to one or more of their grandparents, and it's like in a very powerful way that goes a lot of times to questions of origin and ethnicity. Where am I actually from in this country where everybody feels so rootless and not connected to the old country, so to speak? You know? Yeah, and, and the values that got them here. You know, um, Alex Milgram is a butcher taking meat to people around the city. And when you get into this game, this Ukraine game, you decide at some point that not only do you want to start blue check mark, but you're going to go over there, right? So you were there for how many, like three weeks, a month? Yeah, um, maybe about two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks. And so, I spent actually the first week in Poland. You spent a lot of time over there with, there's a lot of people do over there of Jose Andres and yeah. the World Central Kitchen feeding centers, where when we went and shot the circus in our first episode of this season, we got some help from those guys. This is Jose Andres explaining what World Central Kitchen feeding is doing. He's talking about a specific feeding center that's on the border in Medica, just across the, on, on the Polish side of the border, right where Poland meets Ukraine. One of the largest, I think maybe the largest crossing points for 
refugees at that point. Yeah. And, and I was there with Jose and a congressional delegation, actually. Let's play it and we'll talk about all that stuff on okay. the other side. So, guys, I'm here in the town of Medica, right south and Porter in the border of Poland. There is this road that people come from Ukraine. Ukraine is like 500 meters. In my back, what you're going to see is that people don't stop arriving. People are cold, families are cold. They carry with them whatever they can bring. Many ways to fight. Some people fight just making sure that people are fed. And those are our people, and we're going to be supporting them in many ways. So that was in February, February 28th, not that long after the war started. So, you know, Jose's a hero, right, to a lot of people. World Central Kitchens shows up if there's a flood or an earthquake or whatever. They just dove right into this war zone. And, you know, like I said, when we were down there, which is right around that time, maybe a week later, just the size, the scale of the humanitarian thing that early, the numbers coming into Warsaw, the numbers coming through that checkpoint were so vast and so much vaster than any other experience anybody had ever had, you started thinking about like, well, fuck, man, this war's only a couple weeks old. And if they stay at this pace, and there's no reason to think that it's going to slow down, it's going to overwhelm places like Warsaw. Like you're going to have like potentially millions of refugees in a city that's not that big. Talk about your relationship with Jose and why you went and what you found when you got there. As you look back on it now, like, you know, the visceral experience of being there and also now as it kind of lives in your memory, what you've taken from it having spent that time there? Well, first of all, I credit Jose and World Central Kitchen with getting me into a lot of this, mostly because Central Kitchen was the first NGO that we looked at that we were like, absolutely, this is the kind of group that we want to support. This is a boots on the ground NGO. They're having a terrific impact. Fortunately, they are getting a ton of support. We started with them in our portfolio and we were able to, we've raised money with them, but we feel like they're doing well enough on their own. Yeah. I wanted to volunteer in their kitchen, and I also had told my kids that I wouldn't go into Ukraine, and so this was a way to help be on the other side. It turns out I lied to my kids because once we had made the connections that we had made, we did end up going into Ukraine. But uh, how did it feel? It, It felt amazing to be, first of all, doing something with my hands, you know, to like doing something productive and short form. It wasn't cerebral. It wasn't esoteric. It was tangible work. I was cooking brisket, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was chopping parsley or stirring borscht. And what Jose has figured out around food and our connection to each other is almost as brilliant as the logistics machine that he's created and what it can achieve and how quickly and nimble it works. One of the things that became really clear to me, though, is that while I was there, we were making about 10,000 meals a day. And then within a 48-hour period, that dropped to under 900. And that was remarkable. Of course, that was right around the Easter Passover holiday. But it was also after this kind of thing had set in, because I didn't get there till three weeks after. And people were going back across the border back into Ukraine, which presents all sorts of problems for the Ukrainians. But what became clear to us at that point, and by then we were already talking to some groups in Lviv, was that need is a fluid thing. You know, it's a moving target. So to do this well, we wanted to design Blue Check so that it it would have a diverse enough portfolio that it could be functional 
all the time. Like sometimes it's food, sometimes it's medical aid, sometimes it's shelter, sometimes it's mental health. So to have a diverse enough group to cover all of those needs was really important to us. And that was kind of how we set about establishing our initial portfolio. I just want to speak on behalf of your children, you fucking liar. Yeah. Fucking liar. <laughs> liar. Fucking, I don't know if they can I didn't say that do, as it wasn't a, I didn't do anything dangerous. I really didn't. You yeah. know, the fact yeah. that I spent one night in a bomb shelter was like hugely exciting <laughs> yeah. to me, but it was not, I, was, that, I wasn't this really the, Is this really the way you rationalize with the kids when you've broken okay. a promise to how, them? How should I rationalize when you say when you, when you say, I promise you this, and then you're like, well, I broke the promise, but here's the 43 reasons why it was okay for me to break the promise. That's not like good parenting, man. <laughs> you just got to own it. Just be like, <laughs> well, the whole, you know, to be honest, they're probably my biggest motivation for going. Yeah. They yeah. probably are my in, biggest motivation for going. In what way? They saw me sitting like a chump on my couch oh, eating Hagen dazs oh, 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 you mean like they're your biggest motivation because they were a constant sense of reproach. I want them to As know they were looking that at you going, more, you, you lazy yeah, bastard. And look, yeah, right. Yeah. And they've also got two parents who are in show business, yeah. right? Yeah. Who get an inordinate amount of attention, more than any normal human being should. And the trouble growing up in that environment, the level of expectation for themselves and everything else and that to be reminded of what's most important and, and to be reminded that the greatest thing that you can do for yourself is to do something for somebody else, that that thing feels as good as it does. If they pick that up, then I'm happy. If they get that, I'm happy. And I guess that's how I thought about my grandfather, was I thought of my grandfather as somebody who would do that, who would pick up and go to Spain to, to push fascism back. Now, you know, I'm not going to pick up a gun or anything, and I'm not going to risk my life. Or, I love them too much, and I, I love my time, the time that I have left with them. But if I can help where I see injustice or I see need, I think it's my human obligation. I think it's my moral obligation to do that. I want to play here. I'm going to play the sound of you. Leah mentioned oh, that he dear. was making some brisket, but let's play this right off Instagram. This was a Leah Schreiber post. On Instagram on April 14th when he was over there. And pay attention, everyone, to the pronunciation of the town that he was in. I'm not really good at this stuff, okay? So well, uh, just quiet down there. Let's listen to the sound. Hey, everyone. Uh, taking a quick lunch break here in Przemysl, Poland. And um, I have an exciting announcement to make that in honor of Passover, we're going to be cooking 900 kilos of brisket. Okay, so first of all, 900 kilos of brisket, that's a fucking lot of brisket. But second of all, it's a lot of brisket. I want to say this. So for anybody who's wondering, Chemtrail? the town is spelled P-R-Z-E-M-Y-S-L. Now, you think I'm mocking, my friend. I'm not mocking. I was in that town. We shot there one day. And I had our translator pronounce it for me like seven times. And I was like, Pishmila? Pishpershpishpishki? I, the thing about Polish, right, as you learn, if you go over there, it's like you get a word that says K-Z-R-P-G-Q-L-S, and it's like, well, how do you pronounce that? I say, you give you these complicated words, you say, how do you pronounce that? And they go, oh, that's really easy. It's John. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. you're like, no, that's not, no. none of those letters add easy. up to that. I think it's And Pishmila. four different guys will pronounce it differently. Here's the thing. God bless the Poles. They are the most generous, proud, amazing people, people. on this earth. They got a Incredible. problem with consonants. Yes. They got a terrible problem with <laughs> this consonants. This is my point. This is my point. And we, yeah. It's all just consonants yeah. strung together, yeah. and then they would claim that there was some vowel sound that would come out of that, yeah. like Pishmilla. No I'm like, Pishmilla, yeah. you got to be kidding me. It's ridiculous. Yeah. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Liev Schreiber on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. Uh, so we got to talk a little bit just about your career. Not a lot, but there's a few things I really want to raise. One of them relates to something I never knew. I was like, what was the first movie that guy was in? I was curious because I like going back and playing old things. And that's when we discovered Mixed Nuts. Is this really necessary? It's totally necessary. This is an incredible right. thing. This is oh, Liev Schreiber and Adam Sandler together in a movie from 1994. First feature film that Liev made. It's called Mixed Nuts. And a very young Liev Schreiber, but that's not the key point. A very young Liev Schreiber dressed as a woman playing opposite Adam Sandler. Mm. Are you a professional ukulele player? Oh, no, I'm a writer. What do you write? T-shirts. Really? I wrote Save the Dolphins. <laughs> Excuse me. What do you mean you wrote it? I, I wasn't the first person to say it. I was the first person to put it on a T-shirt. Did you do Life is a Beach? Oh, I wish. <laughs> I met the guy who wrote that at a party. He kind of snubbed me, you know? So first of all, like getting to do your first movie role opposite Adam Sandler, that's pretty rad, I would say. That, I was just, I was just amazed. I think that would make a really good audio play or maybe better than movie, but it sounded really good. I was really grateful for hearing that. Thank you. I mean, of course, Steve Martin also in that movie. I just, I'm curious, yes, like- Madeline uh, Kahn. The incredible uh, cast. Yeah, oh yeah. So you look back on it and think like, for anybody who wants to go look at it on YouTube, it is an incredible thing. If you want to see Liev addressed as a woman, you know, part of the storyline here. It's a funny thing to see, though, as a first image of you on a motion picture screen. It was (laughs) an incredible, incredible experience, John. The the catering alone was worth the price of admission on that job. All of like my heroes, it was uh, Rob Reiner was in it. And I mean, Steve Martin was just... I'm a huge Steve Martin fan. The first time that I was at a read-through for the film, I showed up and I was literally, I'm telling you, this this craft service table was like amazing, like the smoked fish on it and the pastries and the things that I had just dreamed about at some point arriving at a place like that in my life. And I had arrived. They called, a woman came down and said that you have a dance rehearsal. And I said, well, dance rehearsal, I just got here. And she said, yeah, we have your shoes because they'd gotten these drag shoes for me. And I said, but I, I don't have any. I'm wearing jeans. And she said, yeah, well, we've got some sweatpants for you. But I was wearing boxer shorts. And this was the first time that I was going to meet Steve Martin. And so I went and put on these sweatpants with boxer shorts. I'm wondering if you know where I'm going with this now. And the high heels. And we were going to work on the foxtrot together. Uh-huh. And I was just shaking because I was so nervous to meet Steve Martin. I'm actually a pretty good dancer, so I know the foxtrot. And I can tell you in the foxtrot, the man places his leg between the woman's legs and kind of guides her around like that. And so mm-hmm. I, am, I am the woman in this situation. And obviously Steve Martin is the man. And Steve puts his leg between my leg and his thigh casually brushes against my, um, my, my masculinity. Yeah. And at that moment, in that sort of nervous fit, I was like, how inappropriate would it be? if I became aroused right now. And of course, just that thought alone. Oh no, oh no. Just gave me the best I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm trying to recite 
the rosters of the Mets and things like that to make it go away, and it won't. And every time he steps or spins me, it happens again, and like, whack, it just hits against <laughs> his leg again, and whack. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to get fired. This is the job that was going to pay off all of my student loans, and I'm going to get fired for assaulting Steve Martin with my Johnson. Yeah. And um, <laughs> he never mentioned it. He never, never now, mentioned it. Now, that's a class act. I mean, I don't want to suggest the possibility that maybe he just didn't even notice it was kind of just that no, inconspicuous. No. Thanks. No, no. I, it, it, it was, it, honestly, you know, yeah. when you want it, you can't, but yeah. then you don't, you can. And this was really special for me. This was probably, this was world class for me. Wow. Um, okay. So, yeah. that, which that's you're a- right, might not, might not be much to Steve Martin. Earlier said you thought this would be a good radio play or an audio play. Mm -hmm. Now I think the making of would make a really good audio play. Like that story alone, we could do like a one-act play on the basis of it's kind of incredible. So look, you've had this incredible, you've had a television career, a film career, a theater career, all lauded, many great works in each of those category of, of work and some dogs, but mostly, I mean, a lot of really good, interesting things. You make a lot of interesting choices along the way. I've talked to you about this some in the past, but I'm curious as we sit here today in 2022, how do you think about those different media for you? You get interesting offers in all of them all the time. And I know how central the theater is to your heart on some level, but like now that you have some ability to basically decide what you want to do, you have good options all the time. You can structure your life how you want. How do you think about the respective places that you want theater, film, and TV to play in the second half of your life? They serve very different functions. Each one of them was a learning experience for me. I was trained in the theater and I learned to understand timing. I learned to understand audiences. I learned to understand listening and spontaneity in the theater. Those skills I applied then when I started to get into film and I I started to learn more and more about film. Obviously, you could make a lot more money doing film and TV than I could make doing, you know, Free Shakespeare in the Park. So that was a big draw. But it was also really interesting to learn how to work for a camera and to work with those actors who I, over the course of my career, was fortunate enough to meet and watch and dance with. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and become aroused with. Yeah. And come aroused by. No. Um, I just want to be clear. I, I, it wasn't that I was as much as, as, as attracted as I am to Steve Martin. It wasn't that I was aroused by Steve Martin. I think it you were very just, clear about this. It was the incongruity of it. I, I and think the you're... Ambi- I, I would say, listen, as your friend, I'll say, you were very clear about it in your initial explanation. And the fact that you're raising it again suggests a kind of insecurity that it's not, that actually is now making me rethink how well the the explanation was initially. You're right. Let me get back to film, theater, and TV. What happened was I had some children. And the problem with theater, which really is, for me, the most fun, that engagement with an audience, 450, 500 people in the dark laughing about the same thing or thinking about the same thing or feeling the same thing is really extraordinary and something that we've got to hang on to as a culture. But the problem were these eight show weeks and losing your weekends. And when you have little kids, you don't want to lose your weekends. And I'm still there, like they're now teenagers, but I, I don't want to give up my weekends. So yeah, I do want to do a play. I really miss doing plays. I really miss being in a theater and I really miss working with actors in that way. But it's hard to give up my weekends. Um, I treasure them and I treasure the time with the kids. You know, there was a period of time when you were, you know, did a ton of theater, right? And then 
there was that period of time when, for various reasons, we were living across the street from each other, and we were doing Dangerous Liaisons then. And oh, so that's like, right. Yeah, and, I and, you, and I'd see you most of the time. I'd be walking the dog, and you'd be coming home. You were basically yeah. on a coming home schedule that coincided with Fife's nighttime walk schedule. That's, so I'd, that's you'd right. be like in yeah. the middle of the winter, and you're like riding by either on the Vespa or on a bike, and I'd be like, oh, I guess that was the Tuesday night performance of Dangerous Liaisons. That was 2016, and you haven't done a play since then? And you had not done a play before that, six years before that, when you did A View from the Bridge. And that's it, basically. After A View from the Bridge, you've done one thing. And that was a relatively brief run on Dangerous Liaisons, even though the theater is that important to you. And I guess that is just all about the kids. But you imagine a future where, when they have left the nest, that you will go back to theater again, not as a full-time thing, obviously, but that will be an important part of your senescence, so to speak. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to do. I want to just ask you about Ray. That's the other thing that's going on at the same time, right? Which is you go off to make this show for Showtime, Ray Donovan. I'm going to play a little tiny bit of this. Let's let's play one thing of Live on Ray Donovan. It's so hard with Ray to find good sound to play because as you've often commented, <laughs> he, doesn't talk. he doesn't talk very much. This is from season three, the finale of season three, which aired in September of 2015. And this scene is Ray and his brother, Terry Donovan, played by Eddie Marzen. Uh, and at the very end, you're going to hear the great Paula Malcolmson pop in. She plays Ray's wife, Abby. But the clip starts right after Terry Donovan has told Ray Donovan that Ray's daughter, Bridget, is involved with her math teacher and is using prescription medication. So let's listen to that. How long have you known about this? A few days. A few days, huh? Yeah, we talked about it. You're not my kid's father, Terry. No, but we thought it was all under control. We keep fucking saying we. You and Abby, huh? Go on, Terry. You got a little crush on my wife? I know you fucked up in the head, but... Don't get confused about that, all right? No, I'm not the one that's confused, Ray. You're the one that don't get it. Don't get what? It's a disgrace the way you treat her. You're out all night. You're cheating like the old man did. What? Yeah, you heard what I said. Stop it. Supposedly, you fucking stop it. It's good to hear Paula Malcolmson come in and tell you guys to shut the fuck up at the end. That's always nice. Yeah. Uh, she plays that role. It feels very true to her. I mean, just tell me about that. You went off to make this thing. Our friend David Nevins at Showtime says, come make Ray Donovan. Suddenly, you're spending a lot of time in California because the show shot, at least initially, in California. And it took years. It's the longest thing you've ever done, right? You made 80-some-odd episodes of the show over the course of seven years. It's a thing you're widely known for. You're very successful. The show was great. But man, it's a big chunk of your life. Seven years where your life kind of revolves around making this one thing. And it's not even in the town that you live in. After a while, you brought it back to New York. But that was four years, five years. You guys were out in LA all the time. So tell me about yeah. that. Like how you look back on it now. It was heavy. You know, it was um, a mixed bag incredibly positive experience overall that group of people is like my family now and i miss them a lot those actors those writers those directors we worked so closely together for so long and to not see them every day i mean you have some experience with this working with people shooting a show year after year it really feels weird. It's like a phantom limb or something when you're not there anymore. It was different in the theater, you know, because it was sort of three months at a time. This is sort of actor gypsy lifestyle thing. But this was eight years of my life, you know, with the same people going after the same thing over and over again. We became incredibly close. And then not, you know, then it's gone. We still talk, but it's it's hard not to, to work with them every day. There's that piece. There's... Ray was an incredibly dark character to be inside that thing, which when I describe how I thought about playing Ray, 
you'd ramp up all of this inner tension and then you wouldn't express it. And that was the character. And I also found it was certain times during that process that that wasn't entirely healthy for me to be doing that as hard as I was doing it. It did occur during the span of that show that my relationship to Naomi came apart. And, you know, when you and I used to bump into each other downtown, that was when I had gotten that little dark apartment close to Nays so that I could be there for the kids. And it was a hard time. And that play was the wrong play for me to be doing at that time, to be having just gotten separated, to be doing a play about sexual predators was was really was really difficult for me. So our our kind of warm conversations about dogs and politics on the corners late at night were very comforting. Um, so I was relieved, frankly, to be done with Ray. But then this huge outpouring of support and love from the fans, which I just didn't realize, yeah. just so moving to me that it made me go back to David and say, hey, what's up? What can we do? That set up the movie. When it got canceled, as you said, there was this, all these people like, wait, what the fuck? This seems abrupt. This show's not really over. There's all these loose ends and people were banging the kettle drums wanting to get some closure. I'm not demeaning it when I say this was fan service. There was fan service involved though. Fans wanted to know how these storylines would end and wanted to get closure with the characters. Did making the movie feel like pure fan service to you in the best sense, like doing something for the fans? Or did it feel like you also needed closure for those characters and for your experience as an actor on it? I knew I wasn't going to get closure from the movie. I was going to get closure from trying to make the best attempt I could make to give my fans closure. My relationship to the character is so personal, and it's sort of wrapped up in my relationship to those other actors that I was working with and with Ann Bitterman, who created the show. And there was just no way to get closure on that. But I understood what the fans, or at least I thought I understood what the fans wanted. And I wanted to apply that, and so did David Hollander, to our writing of the final script. You have a couple movies coming up, one of which some people have seen in some version, right? The one that opened in Sun Valley, which is the Hemingway oh, movie, Across the River yeah. and Into the Trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got, I know, Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson movie that's in post right now. So d- just tell me about the first one, the Hemingway movie. I haven't seen anything. I know nothing about it except it's based on a Hemingway thing. Now I know why Schreiber's doing this because he's a Hemingway nut for one thing. And then it's also, I think, set in Europe. It's a World War II movie of a kind. We are going to get to see it this year, I believe. Um, tell me about that. I hope so. Um, it was just Hemingway's novel, um, Across the River and Into the Trees that we adapted. And there had been two attempts at making it into a film before that failed. We managed to stick it out shooting in Venice through the pandemic, which sounds horrible. And it was for production, but it was amazing for me because I got to be in Venice when they got their city back. It was empty and beautiful. My interest in it, aside from Hemingway, was something that I was going through, which is, I think, something about midlife crises something about that generation of Americans that I was talking about before who would drop anything and challenge injustice, something about those values and the people who fought for them and were representative of them that make me proud to be an American and make me proud to be an immigrant and make me proud to be Ukrainian and Polish and Scottish and all of the things that go into me being who I am. 
and it was a super hard film to make. But that's pretty much what it's about. During the course of that film, also, my father became very sick with cancer and passed away. And it was about a guy who takes his own life because he feels so guilty about the servicemen who served under him during World War II. And my father had chose, he was getting, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, the, the chemo. Yeah. And, and, and the only chemo that worked on his particular sarcoma was that, was that really horrible one. And eventually yes. he decided that it was, it was too much for him. And so he, living in Washington State, could opt to get a medicine that would end his life. The film is really about a, a kind of middle-aged officer who has been in a lot of battles and is sort of really suffering acutely from the guilt of taking those young men into battle and having lost all of those lives. And so it was a very personal, very difficult, very dark journey for me, but one that I value and I hope at some point people get to see. I'm totally looking forward to it. It sounds incredible. And I know I've told you about condolences about your dad. I know I remember when it was yeah. happening, very hard thing and uh, sarcomas are a bitch. Um, I want to play one piece of sound here because this goes to the other movie, which is the Wes Anderson movie. My favorite of all, you know, the guy wins a Tony for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, appears in these movies, gets all these awards that everybody talks about how great actor he is. But in the end, it's the voice work really that means everything to me. And Schreiber's work in Isle of Dogs, the Wes Anderson movie about a post-apocalyptic uh, canine landscape is really, I mean, the, the role of a lifetime really was uh, Leif Schreiber playing Spots in that movie. And I want to play so we can just hear just how good this man is. I mean, people say men are dogs. This dude actually, you know, played a dog. I, I mean, again, I could watch Isle of Dogs every day for the rest of my life and it would never get, it would never get old for me. So let's play that, please. I got a question for you. How much money do you think the mayor makes? <laughs> I can't tell you that. That's highly confidential. Um, anyway, I'm not the mayor's accountant's dog. That's butterscotch, and she got crushed in a glass compactor the day before yesterday. No, my duties are uh, focused entirely on the protection of the mayor's ward, Atari. I'm not supposed to be his friend, but I love him very much, but that's a private matter. Uh, the only reason I even said that was because we're all probably going to die out here, and I'll never see him again. <laughs> yeah, that's Wes. That's just Wes's writing. It's really... And funny. I think Ed Norton, right, was the other dog. Uh, yeah. I forget what the name of that dog is, but um, Wes Anderson, man. I mean, you laughed in the middle of it. You you did it. You've seen it many, many times in many, many forms. I've seen it many times. It just makes me laugh. And you're right. It is. The writing in those movies is incredible. Obviously, the art direction is incredible also. So you're now part of kind of the Wes Anderson troupe, which is a sprawling thing, but a very identifiable thing. What's it like to be in that troop? And can you say anything about Asteroid City? So always people are like, we can't really talk about it. But then, you know, someone comes out and says something in a story and we learn a little bit more about it just by kind of mistake. It's like Fisher Stevens will always be the one who blabs about it somewhere. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, it's like, well, he wasn't supposed to talk about that, but you know, he's Fisher yeah. Stevens. He can't control himself. Yeah. That was also Fisher Stevens in that clip. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled to be a Was part it really? That was, that was that was Fisher, not Ed. That was Fisher, the, the little dog. Oh, I thought uh, that was Ed uh, Norton. Okay. I, I was yeah. The, yeah, okay. All right. All right. It's extraordinary to get to make two films with Wes because I'm a huge, not only a huge fan, I'm like a student of his work. I love his stuff. Asteroid City was amazing. We shot most of it in Spain. I'm probably not supposed to talk about it, but I'm going to. It would be fair to say that Wes is a cinephile, that he just loves films. There's some component of every film that he makes that's kind of an homage to a time or a period in film. And this one is really extraordinary, kind of American 50s, sort of wonderful transition in Hollywood. 
from westerns to these kind of technicolor. It's wonderful. It's got all these terrific actors in it. An incredible cast. It's like the, it's, incredible it's, like, it's a Wes Anderson cast of thousands. Like it's, it's, the, it's the most sprawling Wes Anderson troop cast I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, I had this realization working for Wes because he's so specific about what he wants. And at times you can feel almost like a puppet, you know, and, and it occurred to me that's a component of what he's doing. It's almost like live action puppetry. And if you can embrace that as an actor, it's really kind of fun and exciting. If you don't, then you kind of feel like, uh oh, wait a minute. I, he's really specific about timing and movement and beats and things like that. You, you know, the first time I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox, I was oh, realizing God. that he's going after something cinematically that's really compelling and different and new. It's fun to be a part of. It's really fun to experiment. Can you say in three sentences what the plot is? Um, what's the plot? Well, an asteroid crashes to the ground in the midst of a sleepy town in the American West and a cast of extraordinary characters become embroiled in a top secret government intervention. Okay, that's awesome. That's, 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 I'm that, probably going to get in so much trouble for that, but I, that's, that's, that's the best I can do. Can you say in two sentences what your character is? Um, there are a number of extraordinary children, and I am the father of one of them. Okay, awesome. I will say, because I referenced it, if anybody hasn't heard about Asteroid City, this is at least the cast list as reported. Tilda Swinton, Bill Murray, Adrian Brody, Tom Hanks, Margot Robbie, Rupert Friend, Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Brian Cranston, Jeff Goldblum, Hope Davis, Jeffrey Wright, Liam Schreiber, Tony Rivalori, Matt Dillon, Sophia Lillis, Timothy Chalamet, Timothy Chalamet, (laughs) Fisher Stevens, Jake Ryan, Ethan Josh, Josh Lee, and that's probably not even a complete list. That's a crazy, that is a fucking crazy cast. All right, we're going to take one more quick break and uh, sell some soap flakes, and then we'll be back with more Liev Schreiber on Hell and High Water. And we are back with my friend Liev Schreiber for the last part of this podcast here on Hell and High Water. Let me play one piece of sound here, John Stewart, from a thing that just happened a couple days ago. John Stewart in Washington, D.C., talking about legislation that's being moved in Washington that's trying to help veterans military veterans exposed to toxic substances. And he goes off. This is legislation that's been in the pipeline for a long time. It never gets passed. It never gets enacted. And you have all these fucking politicians going, we have to do this responsible way. And he's on a, he's on a tear here, letting loose and venting his righteous fury in the way that only Jon Stewart can. You want to do it here? Let's dig a giant fucking pit, 10 acres long and burn everything in Washington with jet fuel. And then let me know how long they want to wait before they think it's going to cause some health problems. Here's the bottom line. You cannot be America first when you put veterans last. And it stops. And these guys are going to get it done. So that clip went viral, as a lot of John's stuff does when it's about like 9-11 first responders. I mean, he's, you know... Very passionate about a particular set of issues related to those things. He's powerful partly because everybody wants to caricature him as like the East Coast liberal. Then he's like in the trenches fighting for 9-11 first responders and veterans, right? A lot of celebrities, artists, whatever you want to call them, um, I'll call you an artist and a celebrity, want to engage on these issues, want to be involved in public policy, want to lend their cachet, their sway, their influence, their money to, to things they care about. But it's a minefield, right, is, is trying to, to talk about it in a way that you seem credible and not like just a dilettante. 
and not like a limousine liberal. And John has found a way to do it. Like we're on the issues he cares about, his consistency and his passion on those issues and the fact that they're not traditional lefty Hollywood issues, yeah. it works for him. A, do you agree with that? And B, how does that inform the way you think about engaging on these issues yourself? I do agree with that. And I don't care if John's a comedian or an actor or a talk show host. I can hear in his voice his intention and his commitment. And I know that it's real. And I know that he's real. And some people are blessed with being more expressive than others. And John is one of them. And I do think that those people have an obligation to be expressive and to say what they think and to say how they feel. Because not all of us are as, as in touch with that stuff as they are. And I want to know what they think. And John's one of those people, like you, that I want to know what he thinks. It's interesting also, too, you know, because like people try to write him off as a liberal progressive Democrat and all that stuff. But the guys out there screaming for veterans, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's all you can do. All you can do is figure out what's important to you and be honest. Just be as honest as you can and be as real as you can. I don't know how to do this stuff. I'll be the first person to say that if they can find somebody more famous than me to drive this blue check thing, I would be so happy. If the Drake thing comes through. If, if Drake get a call from Drake, it, take it over, I'll be all good. You know, if so, that would be if Jake suddenly uncovered a Ukrainian relative and he wanted to do this, I would be thrilled because I'm not as good at it as you need to be. I'm not nearly as expressive as John. I'm not nearly as comfortable in front of people as people might think an actor is. If it means something to you, it means something to you. And that's the bottom line. This means something to me. I feel like I owe a debt to that generation, to my grandparents, frankly, what they went through to make my life as easy, to give me the, the opportunities, the liberties that they fought for, and what this country stands for. That actually really means a lot to me, what we stand for and who we are. And arguably, the past 10 years of American history have been pretty divisive. <laughs> if there's any silver lining to what's happening in Ukraine, it's that I think Putin has galvanized us and reminded us of what our values are yeah. and who we are. I feel strongly about that. Here's a question that relates to this Ukraine-Russia thing that's very specific that gets right at this question about what kind of a voice someone like you wants to have. Because we talked before about why blue check mark's a good idea, why I admire it, why a lot of people admire it. Your commitment to it is clear. You put boots on and went on the ground, all that stuff, right? But there's another set of discussions, which become discussions about policy, right? And right around the time that we were there, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, made a trip in April, late April of, the, of this year. He, he kind of made news because it seemed like he was suggesting that America's objectives or what it would support as a policy was more dramatic than maybe what people thought that, well, I want to hear, we'll hear it. Austin at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany on April 26, 2022. This got back in the news just last week. So let's, let's play that and then we'll talk about it. Ukraine clearly believes that it can win. And so does everyone here. Ukraine needs our help to win today. And they will still need our help when the war is over. As President Biden says, our security assistance has gone directly to the front lines of freedom and to the fearless and skilled Ukrainian fighters who are standing in the breach. My Ukrainian friends, we know the burden that you all carry. And we know, and you should know, that all of us have your back. 
When the war started, people thought there's no way Ukraine can win this war. They might be able to stalemate and the negotiated settlement, give up part of the Donbass. All of a sudden, it started because they were so heroic and so determined and, and fought with such bravery and skill. Everybody starts talking about, hey, they could maybe they could win this war. So now Austin goes out and says that thing. And now we learn that when he gave those very words, that he got like a phone call from Joe Biden the next day going, you can't talk about Ukraine winning the war. That's crazy talk. You know, don't do that. That's not our goal winning the war and somehow weakening Russia. Our goal is just to figure out a way to stop the war. I wonder what you think about that and whether when you hear that, well, I've heard you say that you think that you believe Ukraine will win the war. What do you think America's position should be related to stopping the war versus winning the war? Well, I should first of all be clear that you know everything that I do with our NGO is about humanitarian aid. Yep. And, and one of the things that we're very clear about is that we don't provide military support. We provide humanitarian aid and relief for Ukraine. My own personal opinions about Ukraine are my own personal opinions and nothing more. I believe it's that a very good disclaimer. Can... That was very well done. That was really, that was a very smooth disclaimer. It's almost like a lawyer's in the room with you over there. Well done. Just off the top of your head. I had some experience, experience in the past couple of years, but I mean, past couple of weeks rather. But my own experience meeting them, knowing them, speaking to them is that they can win this and they will. That's just how I feel about it. I think that's how President Zelensky feels about it. And I think how that's the average Ukrainian feels about it. And, and rightly so, because the truth is at stake uh, and the truth is at stake, not only there, but it's at stake here. And the values that they're fighting for are the same values that we fought for, the same values that created our constitution. I understand the sensitivity of this and the delicacy with which everyone is approaching this. They're afraid of this expanding into America, engaging in this war. And they're afraid, obviously, of, of all the saber rattling that Putin does. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that if we look at history, I think that never served anybody well to sit cowering and waiting for something that was inevitable to happen. And, uh, you know, I had the chance to speak with the president, Zelensky, and I asked him, what would he say to people who are considering supporting Ukraine in this effort? You know, the guy's a great speaker. And he just said, you know, first of all, you're, you're a lot braver than you think you are. And that it's better to stop this now before it comes knocking at your door. And I thought that those were somewhat prescient words. You and I have talked, you know, it's funny that those conversations on the street downtown that was right after Trump won. We moved to Tribeca the two weeks after Election Day 2016, and there was a whole shadow of Trump over us. And I remember having so many conversations about, like, you know, what was going to happen? You know, and we were talking in November, December, January before he even came in. Everyone was so caught. It was this, this sense of dread. And then we've seen what happened. We know what happened, right? There's all, it's all clear. But now we're getting to see have on television with the 1-6 committee hearings a vivid recreation of the low ebb, the worst thing that happened. Of all the bad shit that happened during Trump, the, the attempt to stage a coup d'etat and, and have an insurrection and, and the violence of the Capitol, all that stuff. And we're seeing it all again. We're learning new things at every one of these hearings. Are you watching these hearings? I go back to political communication. Are you watching them? And do you think that they have any chance of moving the needle? You know, a lot of people already think Trump's a, a criminal and an insurrectionist. A lot of people think he's a hero. 
it's great for history to have these hearings. It's essential. We must have these hearings, I believe, right? And they are also helping, I think, the Justice Department think about whether it wants to press criminal charges against the former president. But as a political matter, which clearly matters to this committee, they put their first one in prime time for a reason. They wanted to have a lot of people watch. They're trying to change minds and trying to move hearts. Do you think that they can move the needle in a way that's meaningful? And do you think that these hearings have been effective in that regard? But you're really putting me on the hot seat here. Yes, I have watched the hearings and I have been really compelled by them. I wish they felt a little more like criminal proceedings and less like produced events that were after a certain type of feeling. Because that's the problem in this country. It's the same thing that's happening in Russia, for that matter, is just the misinformation. Just so many lies. And we've just got to clean house of that stuff. We've got to be clear and that's the hard part for me. It's one of the problems I have like with the 24-hour news cycle is it created news. It's not news anymore. It's opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. There'll be an item of news and then there'll be like four hours of opinion. And so that's sort of trained us to do propaganda. It sort of trained us to get to the point where inevitably someone like Trump would come along and go, look at this. We could manipulate this whole thing and no one really cares. And that's when rule, the rule of law kind of falls apart. And so I wish that these hearings, I am compelled by them. To be honest with you, it, it feels like old news to me a little bit. Yeah. It's like things that we knew were happening, that, that people like you and other reporters and journalists around the country were talking about a long time ago. But now they're being said in a formal setting, I wish it felt more like the rule of law and less like political theater. All right. You tossed great to my last question because you've talked about it now twice, the 24-hour news cycle and the role of the news media. I said before you, my favorite piece of work of yours was an Isle of Dogs. And I want to clarify, my favorite piece of canine work of yours, of voice work of yours, an Isle of Dogs. Obviously, my favorite real piece of work of yours is in Spotlight. A great movie. I think an important movie. A movie that I find I can watch basically like once a year, even though I'm in the business and I know it and I know some of those people. It's incredibly well done. Hard to do a good movie about... People have done them. I mean, obviously, all the president's men. It's hard to do a good movie about journalism, just like it's hard to do a good movie about computer coding, where the work mostly happens in the mind, right? Yeah. And yet, this movie is a classic, and you play Marty Baron, then the editor of the Boston Globe, then who became the executive editor of the Washington Post, has just left that job. And I want to play this piece of sound, the key moment in this for Marty and for your character, for Marty Baron, in the movie, where a decision is being made about the investigation of child sexual abuse by the Catholic Church has gotten to a certain point. And at that point, uh, a bunch of members of the Spotlight team, these reporters who've been working on this story for months, feel like they have a whole bunch of pedophile priests dead to rights, and they want to get that story into the paper. And they're urging the top brass, including Marty Baron, to give the go-ahead. And Marty says, that's a big story, but it's not the biggest story. And he explains why in a very powerful way. So let's take a listen to that. So why the extreme reaction? Law had to know. That's why he had the reaction. Because he knew there were others. I think that's the bigger story. Bigger than 50 priests. If it came from the top down, yes. But the numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. That's all they do. Indicate. Are you telling me that, that if we run a story with 50 pedophile priests in Boston... Mike. We'll get into the same catfight you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests 
back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. Sounds like we're going after law. We're going after the system. I literally have chills like as I listen to it. I'm curious, like, you know, something you and I have talked about a lot, and I think you can give one answer to this that incorporates these threads, which is what you found compelling about the character of Marty Baron. You spent a lot of time, you researched, you got to know Marty really well to get ready for it. What you found compelling about his character and how that was connected to a larger thing, which is the story of what the role of the news media is in America and what the press should be doing and how coming to understand him and playing the part and then making the movie, how it left you thinking about what the people in my business do and how we could do it better and, and what we're, we should be lauded for and what we should be criticized for and, and all of that. Because it is right in the middle of the question of is American democracy going to continue or not? I wish so much that Marty were here to field this question because he would do it so beautifully. But I think what I admire so deeply about him and all of the journalists like him is their commitment to the truth and is their commitment to the incredible power of the truth and the place it holds in our government and how essential the press is to representing that. If Spotlight is an example, I mean, President's Men is a terrific example of that. I hope Spotlight's an example of that sort of crossroads in history where our democracy was challenged and supported by the press and buffeted by their efforts. Well, not buffeted, not the right word, trust by their efforts. When I met Marty, I was trying to figure out what the angle was, you know, on this guy. And I think the angle in the story at the time was how alone and isolated he was. And it took somebody from the outside to understand what was happening inside Boston and to deal with law. But that wasn't the thing that really made me want to know Marty and, and made me want to be his friend, which is a, a similar thing to you, that there are certain people who have this commitment to the truth <laughs> that as unpopular as it's going to be, they feel a responsibility to go after it. And I, I, I'm an actor, you know, I don't have, that's not my thing. My thing is much more selfish. So I'm incredibly grateful and have deep, deep admiration for the service that journalists, real journalists, provide to our country. Well, listen, friend, you can knock yourself for unselfish if you want. And, and I already called you fat and lazy a couple of times in the, in the podcast, but I will say <laughs> you're going after another kind of truth. And I think, you know, the truth seeking can take place in a lot of forums. And I think, you know, you're for right. the reason, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think uh, let us handle the propaganda bits. Well, you know, yeah. I think it belongs in the arts. Yeah. All of well, the influence and opinion. I wish that there was less of that more straight news. That's yeah. what I feel about. And, and we'll do the opinions and the, and the coloring and the expression. Well, look, I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting time. And this last thing I'll say, I know you got to go, but it's just, it's like best of times, worst of times for our business. I mean, like the work that some journalists did in the course of the Trump era is as good as anything anybody's ever done in the history of the yeah. profession. My colleagues and friends, the New York Times, the Washington Post, investigative journalists in broadcast and other places, people did hero's work. I mean, part of the reason why it feels like old news, what we're seeing on these hearings is that a lot of the shit got reported in the, in the front pages of That's the papers, right. in real time, That's in right. books that people wrote about Trump after. The committee is getting at deeper layers of things, but many of these basic facts of Trump's unfitness for office, his dereliction of duty, his criminality, I would argue, have been things that reporters dug out first. And yet- Outlined 
ages and, ago. Yeah. And yet, and yet, there's also the worst things about the things you're talking about. I would not even say the 24-7 news cycle. It's just also it's social media. It's all of that stuff, the relentless yes. grind of, of all of that, a contextual, a historical, clickbait, trying to inflame partisan fervor rather than get to the truth, not calling bullshit on people in power, but sucking up to them instead. All of that, misinformation and disinformation. It's like the worst our profession's ever been this moment in media, and it's also the best. It really is a Dickensian moment. I look around, I see more stuff that I admire and more stuff that makes me want to puke than I've ever seen in my life as a journalist. And so, you know, it's a tough spot because it really matters right now. The stakes are super high. Yeah, oh, I agree completely. But I think it's that whole tribalizing of it, you know, that whole like pick your sides thing and then support your side. It's just too partisan. And I think that there is a sweet spot in the middle where the old McNair Lair report is a little missed sometimes. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I blame Sondheim for the whole thing because, you know, if it, wasn't <laughs> for, if it wasn't for the Jets and the Sharks, we wouldn't have this problem at all. There'd be no tribal politics. It'd just be everybody be like, we all have on the same team. Jets and Sharks, that's where it all started. That's the story yeah. that I have, but I'm sticking to it. Nobody knows where to go for the truth, though. It's CNN or Fox. It's the Republicans or the Democrats. It's like, that thing is so... How do we stop that? It's polarization and tribalism and shirts and skins and team red, team blue. And I say this as someone who really believes all the things you just said, but it's like the Democratic Party has a lot of problems with it. And I'm happy to criticize them. If they're hypocritical and they lie, and I'm happy to call bullshit on them any day of the week. But when you had a president who was a pathological liar, an unprecedented liar, and someone who has now perpetrated this other big lie conspiracy that now has the party in its grip – you can't not call, that's the truth, you know? You can't not point that out. Mm-hmm. But once you do that, you are, in some sense, adding to the tribalism because you can't say that in America without someone saying, well, you're just a left-wing Democrat. And I'm like, I gotta tell you, man, that guy, when he says that down is up and up is down and the moon's made of green cheese and the sun rises in the west instead of the east, those are just false. I'm not a Democrat mm-hmm. for saying those are false. But it's tricky, right? How you find a way out of the tribalism is made infinitely harder when the most popular person in one of the tribes has elevated himself in the way he has, because you can't not call it for what it is. But you also, as soon as you do that, you're like, you just hate Trump. You just have Trump deranged syndrome. I'm like, I'm not deranged. I really don't. I don't, you know. I think that's part of why I like what happened in America around Ukraine. Yes. And I kind of like how bipartisan that was. Totally. Because what it kind of reminded us, and I think what maybe also what Zelensky reminded us was that there's a certain dignity that is missing in our dialogue and there's a certain dignity and values and principles, and maybe also in the way in which we talk to each other, that that might be helpful. Let's get that, that concert together. Let's do that. All right, cool. You're the one with the direct line to Drake. Once we get Drake in this, it'll all be still Drake be and Gogol Bordello. Thank you for taking the time today, man. Thanks for having me. You know, I could talk with you like all day, all night, whatever, but there's so much more in the career I'd like to spend some time on. So we'll come back. We'll do it later some, at some point. Have fun in Italy. Have fun in the Czech Republic. When she's Thanks, like, like somebody says, has fun in the Czech Republic. It's like, okay, uh, that would be a fun thing. <laughs> That's like where everybody wants to go for their summer vacation. Prague's beautiful. I know it's beautiful, man. It's yeah. beautiful. It's beautiful. You'll have a great time. Good to see you, man. All right, man. Thank you. See ya. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Liev Schreiber for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and also engineered this podcast. Margot Gray this is our very last episode as our researcher and assistant producer, Bon Voyage Margot. And of course, the one and only, the truth, the life, the spirit, 
the man, the myth, the legend, Marshall Eisen. He's our executive producer. 